0: you're listening to mental work i'm your host Bronwyn, an early career psychologist based in australia and this is the podcast taking a closer look at the challenges faced by early career mental health professionals so they don't have to go it alone welcome back to mental work Today, I am sharing the microphone with clinical and forensic psychologist, Kirsten Bouse from Perth Psychology Collective. We're going to be talking to you about the needs of early career mental health professionals, mainly from a psychologist's perspective, and some of the ways of meeting those needs. Kirsten, nice to see you. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, This is a fun topic and an important
1: topic for me to talk about. Uh, But yeah, to introduce myself, I am a clinical and forensic psychologist and I've been doing this rodeo for about 25 years now, so quite some time. And I'm the director of a group practice called Perth Psychology Collective. We've got around 14, 15, nearly 15, about to bring someone new into the practice, psychologists, and that does include five provisionally registered psychologists as well. I've had a group practice for a long time and I would love to say that I've been extremely strategic and seen all the problems that were about to emerge and been very proactive. But most of the things that I've put into my practice, to be honest, have kind of come from the school of hard knocks. I think there've been some really tough and valuable lessons for me as a practice owner, but they've been really important lessons, some of which are relevant for early career sites as well.
0: Well, I'm sorry you had to go through those hard times, but yes, I hope we can benefit from them. Yeah. Um, so as you can see, listener, it sounds like Kirsten has a wealth of experience through her own personal experiences, being a practice owner, as well as being a psychologist herself. And I'm really grateful that we can have Kirsten on board to take us through these topics. And Kirsten, maybe I'll just start with what we had discussed off air, which was that mm. I think you've done a survey of early career psychologists. Could you just tell us a bit about that and what you found?
1: Sure. Although surveys probably okay. um, quite quite complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I put a call out myself because working with and playing, I guess, some kind of developmental role for early career psychs is something that I find extremely exciting and a huge privilege. And I wanted to understand more about the the range of where early career psychs are at so I too put a call out um and had some amazing conversations with people who I would say were either kind of gosh first six within first six months of the provisional registration so brand spanking new right through to maybe people who were five years maybe they've been working with clients therapeutically for five years uh, and everything in between And I guess um, I came up with this kind of concept, which I think psychologists would definitely understand, and that's Maslow's hierarchy of early career psychologist needs. I love it. (laughs) Um, And the reason I came up with that is because the the range of feedback I was getting was really very clear to me around, I guess, how many early career psychs weren't supported in their workplace enough, weren't supported in supervision or one or the other. So one might have been working well, but the other one wasn't right through to people who um, had wonderful experiences and, you know, they were either right smack bang in those wonderful experiences or retrospectively were saying, yes, it was, it was fantastic. And, and so that was just really informative for me. And the, and the reason, I mean, I put the call out in the first place was because of a program I am developing where I uh, really want to be working with early career psychs and I really just wanted to kind of get some feedback before I launched into um, developing that program further.
0: So, Kirsten, with the survey, it really sounds like support was one of the key needs that arose from, I guess, speaking to early career psychologists. And when they don't have that, it really affects them personally and professionally. Um, could you tell us more about what they said about that or kind of what you gathered?
1: For sure. Um, I, I mean, I think the first thing, um, and they're, they're both really practical kind of sides of things. So, there's the workplace and there's the supervision and my, the feedback that I received was that there was a real sense from those who would describe the support as very poor, uh, and that was about being really thrown in the deep end without guidance, massive caseloads straight away, and I think a really critical factor also seemed to be whether there was on-site supervision or not. Now, from my perspective on-site supervision is essential that doesn't necessarily have to be the APRA primary supervisor although that's that's my preference because then as a primary supervisor I also understand the workplace as well Um, but nonetheless you know a lot of people were saying yeah we were just kind of (laughs) thrown to the wolves essentially and so they're drowning under large clients they're drowning under presenting issues um, there's no one holding them. And you know, at the beginning of any massive learning curve, you need kind of to be held. You need to be supported, you need a reflective space, you need direct guidance and instruction at times. How do I do x, y, and Z? Uh, and a lot of the people that were quite damaged uh, and and feeling really impacted in the long term were describing those kinds of experiences. And what ended up happening is they felt as though they never, kind of got clarity around how to work with different people different presenting issues different models it was all just a bit of a chaos in their head Um, and they were needing you know now that ARPRO boxes are ticked and generally registered and all the rest and because that's such a demanding pathway but once that was done it freed up time and headspace to then go back and work through the chaos.
0: Yeah, which is, which is such a shame because it's like what I'm hearing from you is that they were put in the deep end so much that it, it kind of ruined their capacity to be able to learn during it. They're just kind of like surviving rather than actually being allowed to learn and grow professionally.
1: Yeah, and, and even sadder, not enjoying it. Yeah, that is really sad. You put put all this effort into studying. Like everything's about I want to be a psychologist and then to have such a soul-destroying experience. I feel really sad as someone who's been around for a long time. It it saddens me that that was the factor for some people that either saw them get out, because I did have some people kind of contact me and speak to me who've chosen not to pursue the profession, or that, you know, they were still they were still just feeling really, they were really lacking confidence and also doubting the career path. And I think it's one thing to doubt your career path if you've got wonderful support and a great workplace, but some for some reason, you've just worked it out a bit late that psychology is not for you. It's another if that's come about because you've had a really crappy experience.
0: I think it's endemic. Like with this podcast, one of the most popular episodes actually is my episode titled Thinking About Quitting. And I had people contact <laughs> me about that. And about that and myself included, I've experienced those kinds of days where I'm looking up like personal training courses or maybe I could do massage therapy. And I'm just like, what am I doing here in this profession? And that actually comes from a place of being unsupported during my provisional years and lacking that confidence and having that self-doubt, as you say. So it's really, I guess it's reassuring to hear that other people are in the same boat, but it's also shitty that like other people are in the same boat. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I mean, I
1: guess I must add that despite being this far into my career and having generally having confidence, there are certainly days where I think, oh, I might go back and sell jeans at Just Jeans, which is what I did did during my undergrad. And I think that'd be so much nicer. I'll just fold jeans and I'll have inane conversation with people and I'll listen to music. Easy. Yeah, yeah, so totally. much easier than sitting in front of clients. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I think we all have that no matter how far we're into it. But for me, that's more uh, about just a volume of work, rather than a lacking, lacking of confidence or, a um, you know, a messy head. Um, whereas I think for early career psychs, it's all of those factors that can have them dreaming of quitting and becoming a massage therapist. As yeah, you said. totally.
0: So Kirsten, with, with this topic, it's like, um, so psychologists are saying they're thrown into workplace, they're kind of thrown into the deep end. Like for me as a provisional, it was like sink or swim sort of thing. And why are, why are we being placed in this position? Like assuming that we just don't have evil, like our bosses and workplaces out yeah. there who, who deliberately design this to somehow like give us like a treacherous test sort of thing. Like why, why are early career psychologists being placed in these positions where they don't have support?
1: I think to be honest, and maybe this is a, a bit of an idealistic perspective. Um, so i'm gonna I'm gonna set aside perhaps what I hope is a really, really, really small portion of people who are just who know they're not doing the right thing but persist. and I think I think there's practice owners or business owners who are just they actually just don't know their obligations. And one of the things that I've noticed and to be honest having spent so much money even though I've learned from the school of hard knocks I've still spent so much money getting the right information legal information, financial information, business consulting generally, business consulting specific to psychology practice. I've spent a shitload of money myself to really try and have a an ethical effective and profitable private practice and I'll come back to that word profitable in a minute because everyone cringes when I say that (laughs) Um, what I find very frustrating and it happens all the time is is now you can go to your professional group in Facebook and you can say I'm about to bring on my first prof site can somebody please give me an employee agreement that they've had it does my head in oh really oh absolutely does my head in Um, and there's many different types of versions of that and I see my colleagues who I'm very close to who run group practices respond with we think you should go and seek specific advice from you know the right professional and things I don't tend to jump in to that conversation other than to reiterate what my colleague might say because it sometimes they just go so you know what those things can be like absolutely what that tells me when that call out is done is that they're actually not taking it seriously because in some ways you actually have to spend money on getting very specific advice and understanding there's no point just getting an employee agreement and actually not understanding what you're agreeing to and what you're asking the employee to agree to. So for me, there's a heck of a lot of naivety out there, a heck of a lot. And it's the naivety that gets business owners, practice owners and into strife and it's, it can be something that leads to that lack of support and ex- exploitation. I think the other side of it is, you know, for a private practice, we typically have no funding other than what the client fees are. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I've got lots of third party um, clients in my practice, as well as, you know, fee paying clients themselves. But that's not a funding stream. That is still a fee for service. It's just Joe Blogs pays for himself or a particular organization pays for Joe Bloggs. And so the realities of running a practice is they are really expensive. Yes. We have one of the smallest profit margins as a profession compared to every other profession.
0: Well, cool. Could you just tell us like what roughly that is?
1: <laughs> You're probably looking at somewhere between
0: 10 and 15% profit margin. And what's,
1: what's that compared to other professions? Oh, you know, we're talking accountants and big accounting firms and finance and things. And I'm, uh, let's just not, I won't go national because that's, you know, they could actually be publicly listed. So that's a whole other ballgame. But you could be looking at 20 30%, even more. Yes, it's a significant difference. Yeah, not a lot of wiggle room. And so then there's these pressures. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm quite a transparent business owner. I always have been. And the purpose of that is actually not to make people feel bad, but to actually understand where their fees go and to, you know, really recognise the importance of having, I mean, if they want to have really detailed information about that, they probably want to run their own practice. So people don't want the detail, but I think they feel a lot more comfortable in the either subcontracting arrangements or employee arrangements when they do have some idea of where the, the fees that clients are paying are going. And so I've always been somewhat you know relatively transparent without basically handing over my books (laughs) uh, with my team and I think I think that's a really important thing but because it is just one of the stresses of a business owner you need to actually run a profitable practice because profitable means sustainable. Sustainable means I can still open my doors and provide you with a job and income, whether it's employee or subcontractor in six months' time, 12 months' time, two years' time. We can weather the storms, blah, blah, blah. If it's not profitable, you'll close the doors. And for me, that would be 20 people because that's including my
0: admin, 20
1: people out of work.
0: And it's not just affecting 20 people either. It's like their families. Their They're families. families. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I've kind of talked about this in previous episodes about how psychologists are just very scared and almost have like an anti money kind of thing. Like you shouldn't be in this role for the money sort of thing. Um, But it's, it's just, you cannot talk about private practice without talking about how you're going to sustain that practice. Yeah. One of the things I just wanted to circle back to was that I found it was really interesting how you're talking about um, the possible naivety of some practice owners. And it really struck me that say you've got a naive practice owner who's just like, doesn't understand their obligation, that meets an early career psychologist who's just trying to like stay afloat and not understanding anything. I mean, for me, I'm like, yeah, that's an easy recipe for disaster, right? Mm,
1: Yeah, it's a bit bit of a (laughs) no-brainer.
0: So it's like we need both the practice owners to understand their obligations so that they can support the psychs. But then as you were saying before, it's like it can be helpful if the early career psychs also understand just a little bit about the business as well.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think I mean, early career psych um, does obviously include generally registered or registrars. I think when you have employees or, and or subcontractors, so prof registers obviously can't be subcontractors, but registrars could, can be, they can be income. But I think when you've got people who are going through formal APRA pathways of supervision, then the cost is actually huge to the practice absolutely huge and I think and people have said to me people who don't bring the you know people with these kind of qualifications are at this stage of their career there are group practice owners who just won't do that and it is because it's not until they've actually finished their pathway and maybe six months beyond that they become profitable And so people will say, well, why would you do it? And for me, it's kind of like, well, why do you become a psych? Because you're not going to make buckets and buckets of money. You do it because you love it, right? Well, hopefully you do it because you love it. (laughs) Um, You certainly hopefully start out that way. Um, And for me, I'm at a stage of my career, I've loved client work. I've actually only just ceased all my client work. Oh, wow. And that is to focus my energies. I feel like I'm actually preempting Ericsson's stage of development <laughs> that, should, that I should be happening in my sixties and I'm only about 48, but the that stage of, yes, exactly. Yeah. That stage of development where you kind of want to pass on your wisdom and things. The, the generation of early career psychs are the psychs that are going to shake up the profession, which I think needs to happen. I really, really, really hope that they are the generation that also heals our profession because we are so fractured Mm. and they're the ones that, you know, are also then obviously going to work with clients and, you know, one site has a significant impact over the course of their career on I can't even count how many clients, you know, it's massive. Um, and so for me, I'm just at that stage where that is way more exciting to me to try and have a role in supporting, shaping, developing early career sites so they can go do these cool things and experience our profession in a really positive way than for me to be doing client work. And and I might not have said that. I wouldn't have said that five years ago, but,
0: you know, we all evolve. So... I think it's what's needed because I feel like the people you were talking to, the earlier career sites, I can definitely relate. And my assumption on this podcast is if that I have a feeling about something, somebody else who's listening does and probably a few people do. So I think it's really what needed. We actually need somebody in our court being like, yeah, we mm-hmm. need to support and nurture you because I think the early years... Are really really hard we are trying to deal with all sorts of presentations work out our place in this profession in our career and as well dealing with this fractured profession as you say it's really tough so I'm glad that there are people like you out there Kirsten
1: (laughs) yeah well thank you um yeah, it just, I just find it super rewarding and, you know, this is where I want to put my energies, which is why I do what I do and why I take on provs. And, I, I mean, I've had students for 10, 12 years coming to practice, my practice and that was, I guess, where I learned how to support people at that stage of their career in the first place. It was kind of a safe entry for me to really hone my skills and my understanding in this space and yeah so for me that's what I get back out of it really that's that's why I have provisionally registered sites even though I mean some have been at my practice and wouldn't definitely wouldn't have a full caseload until they've been there at least six months so that's you know they're then there's they're not covering their own costs for six months at all
0: yeah I was just gonna say like just to make it explicit to the listener it's like Kirsten is making a deliberate choice here because it's like when people are pros, it's like what Kirsten said earlier was like to be profitable. It's a fee for service um, thing. And so you need to be bringing in that income to like cover the cost of supervision and supporting your own resources and like super and, and like insurance and stuff like that. There is a cost to having a provisional psych on board, but you're choosing to wear that cost, I guess. Yeah. Choosing to wear that
1: cost. And I mean, in some ways it's, it's a temporary, you know, it's a temporary cost. Whereas admin, admin are absolutely critical. They are, they are the cogs and the foundation of a practice. They never, you know, they never generate their own income. Um, but these are all the, the things that I think people often don't think about and perhaps including those naive, business owners who are like taking on their first prov or just even taking on their first psych in some capacity and they do a call out for a contract or they do, they ask a question about GST and stuff in those Facebook groups, you know.
0: Absolutely. So Kirsten, I'm going to change the direction a little bit. I kind mm. of have two, two kind of pointed questions to you. I don't know if I'm lead to the other, so I'll just start with one and see how we go. Sure, go for it. I have one question so early career psych sometimes they're really angry at the practice and they feel like it's really unfair maybe the the split that they're getting if they're a contractor or if they're an employee they kind of feel like they're working too hard for not enough support so like how do I know if if that was me how do I know if my anger at the practice is justified or if I'm just kind of being like a so- <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Just be yourself.
1: Um, yeah, I, it wouldn't be the word I use, but perhaps.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was trying, uh, to, I'll, I was trying I'll to think of like it.
1: a PPC word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something that's not going to set this on fire. Yeah, I understand. Um, look, I think I think a couple of things is in an ideal world they're able to sit down with whoever the practice owner is and have a conversation, kind of understand, um, you know, everything that's being provided. And a great example is that we've had quite significant um, shifts, for example, in our admin team who've had some really significant events in their own life. So our admin team has been at times next to nothing. Um, and that really demonstrates just how critical they are and what an important expense they are for our practice and how much they actually take off a clinician's plate. Now you don't want to have to go through that to prove the worst or or anything like that but I think they're important conversations to be having if you're feeling that way. When I you know kind of I guess bring in people into the practice I don't want to overwhelm them with okay so this is your percentage or this is your wage and here's a, a kind of pie chart of where it goes and That's something that definitely happens, but not not in the beginning stages because there's learning about private, you know, being in that workplace. They're overloaded as it is. But I think um, asking questions and just saying, look, I'm feeling really frustrated, but I also understand I may not know, I may not have information, you know, the correct information for me to be actually feeling this way. So I'd really like to talk with you and hear where this kind of money or the difference between what I'm being billed out at and what I'm receiving, whether it be as a um, subcontractor on a split or whether it be as an employee in wages, I'd really like to understand kind of where that part of the billing that's retained, where does that go? Now some practice owners won't be open to that conversation Um, and it is a confronting conversation because I guess we go straight into oh god you know they're feeling they're feeling undervalued but I, you know this business costs what it costs and you know so for me I, I'd welcome that conversation but it would be a difficult conversation because it almost I guess starts to feel like you're being challenged as to whether you run a good business which a lot of us want to think we run it more you know we try and run a good business so we feel as though we're being accused of something okay. bad yeah
0: <laughs> so we get. We get triggered too. Interesting. I I hadn't considered that because like for me, like I'm just trying to put myself in my own shoes. So when I was uh, in my first provisional cycle role, I was working for a government-based service and I would do the billing for each client. So I would be earning, I think I was earning about $26 an hour. And then I'd Mm -hmm. see that we were charging two seventy-five dollars per client session. And so I was like, And I was being overworked. I was seeing six clients a day in my first provisional role. And if I was half an hour below my KPI, then the manager would come out to my location and talk to me about my KPI. Mm. And I hated that workplace. And I was seeing very complex clients as well from socially disadvantaged areas. I think like for me in that role, it would have been like, I was just curious. I don't think I would have seen it as like challenging the practice owner. I was really just curious. I didn't understand, but I can see from what you've just described, like how a practice owner could feel like as though they are being challenged. Yeah. Because that, that thing you mentioned before where
1: bunny is a dirty word in our profession. Yeah. So it's, po- it's poking that sore spot, you know, in, indirectly it's all, I'm essentially being accused of being greedy and you know come to my house and you'll see I don't live in a mansion but even yeah. if I do live in a mansion there could be many reasons how or ways I got there and maybe you can live in a mansion too one day I mean I do think psychologists undervalue ourselves you know across the board for sure. But no, I, w- I would welcome, I, it'd be a difficult conversation, but I'd welcome that conversation. And I think it's just about, as you said, if you can initiate and ask to have that conversation from a place of curiosity, then I think that is a really good starting place. And, and I actually think you know more broadly referring back to something I said before, um, I think sadly, even though curiosity is a you know critical thing yeah. in our therapeutic work, we seem to forget it for each other.
0: <laughs> yes, we do. We do absolutely. One of the things you pointed to earlier as well was I thought really important. I think you're pointing to like humility in like the idea mm. that you might not know everything. So you know I feel like that goes along with curiosity. And I feel like Maybe maybe I'm talking to myself or maybe I'm talking to the listeners, but guys, have some humility. Maybe we don't know what's going on, so just have that conversation.
1: Oh, I I would argue as transparent as I am, um, I still am a leader of a practice and, you know, we've had some rocky times and it gets to a point where that has to be acknowledged. Um, otherwise, it's almost like an elephant in the room. My people would absolutely not know the depth of the the times that have been really stressful and why and the gazillion solutions I'm trying to come up with um, and things. So I think I think just really trying to understand that as a practice owner that they're they're carrying a lot. Like I've got four children teenagers to young adults and while none of my staff behave like children let me be really clear they're amazing people but essentially with 16 staff and four kids I absolutely feel responsible for 20 people in quite a critical way that probably says a bit about my schemas and stuff. which <laughs> um, <laughs> are all, you know, we all have them. Um, you know, on the flip side, it's about, okay, um, I'm being asked some questions about this. Where are they coming from? And I think there's that balance that if, if a prof or an early career psych or any psych feels supported in their workplace, then they're going to be curious like, and still have those questions about where's all the money going why am I only being paid X? I think then that's going to, the two people are going to be able to have a really good conversation and it's going to be a nice foundation. It's when there's a sense of, I don't understand where the money goes and I'm feeling unsupported and undervalued and just kind of dismissed. That's the shitty combination.
0: Yeah. I, I agree. Cause it's like, the, the money conversation is almost like the surface and then underneath is those yeah. feelings of not feeling valued um, and unsupported. And that's what actually needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. I do have another question related to that then. Like if we can say the practice owner, like they've got, well, you know, I don't think you're wrong, like schema or not. It's like, it's actually true <laughs> that you're responsible yeah. for a lot of people. And so like, if we can understand where the practice owner is sitting, I wonder if we can just flip it back to the early career site. And mm, there mm. are stories of like exploitation yeah. in, in, our, in our workforce. And so I guess I just want to put it to you as like an experienced psychologist who really is trying to help early career psychs. Like how do we know if we're actually being exploited? Well, I, I mean, it drives me batty
1: when I hear it and see it. And um, I do hear it and see it sadly because then it, it tarnishes everyone else who's trying to do the right thing. And I know how damaging, damaging it is to, to the early career psych. So I think one of the first things is to educate themselves as much as they can more broadly. So what are the fair work responsibilities that an employer has? Um, What are the ARPA limitations? Because, I mean, I've heard of prompts being contractors. I know that happens and I very gently shared that. You know, that's not okay, what's happening for them, and helped guide them through, I guess, ways of approaching it and seeing whether there's any kind of remedy to the to the situation. So I think fair work and ARPRA is I need to know what A, I am allowed to do and not allowed to do as a provisionally registered psych, as an example. I also need to know what I am entitled to as an employee. If you're not provisionally registered, then I think you're looking at okay, what are the what are the reasonable conditions and elements of a subcontract arrangement? People will often say, I get 70% of the split. And to me, that's irrelevant compared to someone who might charge 50% if the fee for the 70% is a bulk bill rate <laughs> um, versus, you know, what might be a reasonable rate. So I think, you know, there's a lot of just, flippant conversation around this is my split that's my split and there's actually no digging around well what are the bill out fees what are the range of bill out fees how can you progress your split does your split progress because that can be really difficult as a practice owner to progress split excuse me people's increase in income often comes from client increase in fees more so than a chain um, split How would it be different if I was a registrar? And once I finish my registrar as a subby, what happens then? Flexibility, diary management, niching, client type, support, what kind of support? That's a big word. Like it covers so many things as well. Um, yeah, so it's worth having conversations with a range of people. But if you're talking to your peers, understand that they're not also necessarily the authority. So Fair Work is an authority. ARPA is an authority. The ATO is an authority. If you're going to be a subcontractor, actually spend the money and go and talk to an accountant about what your obligations are. It's a great idea. Small business.
0: Mm. Ah, Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So like, in answer to the question, yeah, like in answer to the question, like, am I being exploited? I wish there was a simple answer, but it sounds very nuanced no. and complex depending on your circumstance.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and while, you know, as I said, go to the authorities, Yeah, uh, you know, the the bodies that... Kind of dictate what we have to do, (laughs) Um, what the practice owner has to do, and then yes, also ask peers, but try and ask a range of peers in a range of settings. I've been a solo practitioner, I've been a subcontractor in a group practice, and I've run a group practice, and I've been a government employee and I've been a university employee. So I've kind of ticked a lot of boxes, and you know, I think um, if you can get information from people who've been in all of those different domains, then you're also getting a good picture of what's available and. appropriate.
0: I agree. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, sometimes when you get info from your peers, it's like, sometimes it can be a bit of an echo chamber or like simply you guys just don't know. And sometimes it's really good to get like multiple pieces of information to put together that bigger picture. So I feel like that's really important. And I will chuck the links to fair work. I've put them in the show notes before, but it just <laughs> keeps on coming up and up. And it's like, yeah, like no, no, your rights, no, the employer's obligations. It's really important. And so like, if you feel like you're being exploited, it's worth educating yourself but also having those diverse conversations definitely
1: and I think I mean if you're if you're being exploited you can actually ring their work and they'll have a conversation with you around that for sure you can ring ARPRA you can ring the APS or the AAPI if you have members of those um and get some information and some guidance there too and you know you can also reach out I guess to a whether they're a formal supervisor or just a mentor who's been around the block a bit or their avenues as well it's one it's one thing that I do really like to see in the Facebook professional groups is the ability to reach out and get some guidance on on all sorts of issues not just these issues Um, that's when we do it well as a profession in terms of supporting one another yeah
0: yeah I agree thank you and then I've got a complete 360 with like kind of the next thing but like one thing that you mentioned to me off air that you're kind of passionate about was this idea of personal development for psychologists and I really just wanted to touch on that because I do feel like if I reflect on my own personal experience with training it was really that we had so much to learn and I literally remember the coordinator for my course being like and here's the like self work like mindfulness book or we're gonna have like a mindfulness session every week and I was like oh my god bloody hell I cannot fit that in like I just ain't got time but it actually has had consequences in that like one of the things that I didn't learn about throughout my training was how to manage like transference and countertransference and how to take care of myself as a professional and so I'm really interested to hear like what you think about personal development for psychs
1: yeah I'm a huge fan of it and I don't mean to laugh but I'm like we are the oh, no, worst prof- <laughs> we are the worst profession for yeah. teaching <laughs> let alone practicing I hear that you know, how to look after ourselves. And I think, I think the interesting thing, I mean, I don't mean to be controversial, but I think there's a line and there's a slight difference between looking after yourself and actually indulging yourself. Okay. And, I, I, you know, I'm so nervous about, I guess, saying this in a public forum and I'll be really upfront, this is not something I've actually seen in my own practice at all. If anything, my own practice, I really do need to encourage my team to look after themselves, and that's that's not good. That's not like a badge of honour that we wear, although we like to think of it that way. But I, I certainly know enough very real-life stories where I guess putting boundaries in place does and, and looking after oneself does can move into an indulgence and meaning that person just consistently doesn't meet their professional obligations. Interesting. And that's a really, really tricky, tricky line. And when I think, and when I think about that, it actually leads me back to what I, I mean, it's not the origin of why I feel so strongly about personal development, but for me, it's like, okay, maybe this would be a bit of a remedy, a bit of, you know, something that would help People find the, you know, where the line moves from self-care to indulgence. For me, personal development, I I actually did my gestalt psychotherapy training um, after my master's and it's a four-year, very intensive. Wow, four years. Yeah, yeah, yes. And it's all your own shit, (laughs) (laughs) which just seems to keep coming, you know, but, um, you know, I loved it at the time, valued it at the time, and the further along in my career, the more I realized it actually helped me really develop a strong sense of who I was. And um, for want of a better word, develop some internal resilience, that self awareness. It certainly sparked that. You know, that interest and curiosity and that desire to continue to work on myself and understand myself, try new things and recognize that just when I've got something sorted, I probably haven't. Um, and I might still be tested. And you know, this you know, so all of that has just spilled into my life as a whole, you know, not not just my working life, but For me, I guess one of the consistent things I've had over the course of my career from clients, and I've worked in such a vast range of settings, is an ease, I think, that I have with myself in a therapeutic space. And my clients would say they meet a person before they meet a psychologist, they meet a human before they meet a psychologist, um, and... You know, some of those who are far more articulate would say that that was the critical factor in their healing. And we know this. We know that the therapeutic relationship is kind of you can have all the bells and whistles, you can learn a gazillion magical tricks. Yes. And things. But if you actually can't be present, attuned and responsive to your clients, then those things will not be anywhere near as effective. Um, And for me, when I talk about personal development um, for early career psychs, it comes from a place of seeing how anxiety-provoking it is for early career psychs to be sitting in front of clients generally or sitting in front of particular clients. Their reluctance, you know, to the lack of safety they feel and acknowledge what's being triggered for them from clients, as you said, transference and counter-transference. Yeah. terms of projection. <laughs> um, similar kind of concept. Uh, and I think, you know, our profession can sometimes be accused of just being a bit like a textbook, Yes, and I think that's that two dimensional. It's when somebody doesn't feel comfortable or even know how to bring themselves into that therapeutic relationship. That's when a client will will experience that person that that therapist as a two dimensional textbook kind of person. Yes, and that doesn't mean you disclose lots about your life. That you don't to be three dimensional and to be a person first and psyche you know second does not mean you have to tell people lots of stuff about yourself. Um, or tell clients sorts of things about yourself. It's about, ideally, clients have a sense of who you are underneath all the qualifications and all the rest. And they just, yeah, get a really, really genuine sense of who you are. And I've found that that is just, that just has such a profound impact on clients. And it actually lays a foundation for clients to then be able to be fully themselves in session and in that journey which of course we know is critical but how can we how can we help clients achieve that and and be that when we struggle to do that ourselves so for me the personal development element is how do I how do I truly learn presence how do I learn attunement and how do I be responsive Well, all of that actually starts with knowing oneself and knowing how to be present with yourself, knowing how to be attuned, responsive, understanding where you and I begin and end, you know, and the relationship and what goes on between us. There's this in-between stuff (laughs) process Um, and um, so for me, that's the really juicy stuff, like that's that's the stuff I love when I work with early career psych.
0: Well, it's really clear, like you sound very passionate about it. And like, I felt like it was very powerful what you just said with us. And it also feels very reassuring. So I'm actually starting out with my schema therapy accreditation and part of cool. a, a big part oh, wow. of that Good is, you. is self-examination. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, And it, it like, maybe it might, if it reassures me, I'm like, maybe reassure the listeners. So well. it makes me feel like I'm on the right path. Um, For mm. me, I've got a very high unrelenting standard schema. So like, <laughs> to me, it feels like indulging to even think about myself and like you know do a little bit so like it's it's really reassuring and it also highlights to me like instances where it has been very powerful and maybe like I could encourage the listener to think about like times when them being present has had a really profound effect on clients I know I've had at least a few situations where it has and that hasn't been from like massive self-disclosures or anything it's from being mm. like you say attuned responsive and actually like connecting with them as a person first within like as the boundaries of like that professional relationship. Yeah. But that's also exhausting, isn't it? It is. It's totally exhausting.
1: You know, to have that level of presence, session after session after session, is exhausting. And so, at the same time, that's when, I guess, when we un- when we can be present with ourselves and all those other things I've mentioned, we actually then have a much better way of gauging how we're also travelling in this gig, and. I feel as though I've come out of a period of of burnout um, a bit you know later in my career but I'm I'm sadly convinced that early career psychs will experience that much earlier in their career if they if they don't you know, understand and have that real kind of internal awareness um, and that's because the world moves faster. Like it, there's just so many differences um, between when I started and, you know, early career psychs now and, and so for me, I feel quite protective. It's like how how can I help this um, population of new professionals last the distance, you know? How can I help them remain passionate and interested in their profession but not at the expense of themselves. And so that's why I say self-care is super important and I'm mindful of that self-indulgence indul- because we, do have a, we have professional responsibilities to our clients.
0: Yeah. It's, it's so funny you mentioning that. Cause it's like, it's like for me, like with my underlending standards, I'm like, what people don't do their notes and they don't meet the requirements. And I'm like, Oh my God, who are these people? Yeah. Um, so it's just like, it's just like, I just, it's just bizarre to me. Um, yeah. It's really, yeah. It's really interesting. And I'm so glad that you brought it to like my awareness and the awareness of listeners. And like, I feel like we have a shared goal. Part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I think psychology is an amazing profession. And I'm seeing my colleagues like out and leave the profession and I want us to keep going in it but doing so in a way that like doesn't tear us apart pretty much
1: absolutely I mean you've just you've just said everything that I feel um I have done a lot of media work in the past and Again, people would say, why would I do it? And it's like, I just love psychology. We yeah. have so much to offer and so broadly. And, you know, I yeah, I just want to see our profession and every individual in it be able to be, you know, really, I guess, wholehearted in this experience and enjoy it and be able to do it for as long as it genuinely floats their boat.
0: Absolutely. Well, Kirsten, I think that might be a good place to start wrapping up. And I just want to say I'm so grateful for the learnings and experiences you've shared with us. So I'm very grateful. And please feel free free to share with the listeners how they can find out more about your early career kind of thingy that you're starting. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's probably a really good way to put it okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> because, because i've i've got the i
1: know exactly how it's going to look um but i've really just got to work on some of the new now. um but it's es- but essentially they can find me first and foremost at her psychology collective um they can definitely contact me through that my goal with the human scientist practitioner is actually to be running retreats for early career sites where they do a lot of self-work which also has the added bonus of being able to be done with clients um, so there'll be pd points that they can get but it's just an immersive experience which for me having run retreats before is really transformational um, and that's just kind of the beginning of what I want to develop so if people are keen to kind of stay connected the best way is just instagram custom our site and also Per Psychology Collective. And eventually when I get my shit together, so to speak, and get the minutiae going rather than the big vision stuff that I have, um, then Human Scientist Practitioner will be the avenue people can find me at.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Kirsten. I'll put the links to those things in the show notes and really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. No worries. It's been fun.
1: It's been really fun. Thank Good. you.
0: Good. Yeah. And listeners, if you have, if you'd like to give me any feedback or if you have any ideas for any future episodes, please feel free to send me an email at mentalworkpodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to tell your colleagues and share this episode with anybody who you think might be interested. That means psychologists, other early career mental health professionals, anybody who could benefit from this really came for you to share it set them up with the Spotify or get them to get it up on their phone themselves and put it in their podcast listening app. Thanks so much, Kirsten, and see you guys later. Bye.